Colossians 1, verse 18 through 20, before Artie Kendall comes to share the word this evening. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's welcome our Christ wears two crowns at the right hand of God. A crown, head over the church, and head over the nations. That means he's the head of Ghana, Nigeria, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, and even America. But there's more. His blood shed on the cross applies to people, but also to nations and the entire creation in heaven and on earth. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very simple, very, very clear, May this be life-changing and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our greatest duty and privilege is to find out what pleases God. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man... The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, finding out what pleases God and what is special to Him is relevant for our personal lives. But I have to tell you, God's greatest pleasure is with His Son. And if I can somehow get this over to you tonight... It will change your life. Whereas maybe up to now you're focusing on what will I do tomorrow? How am I going to make ends meet? Uh, should I meet this person? What is the next step forward for me? And we're all concerned with our personal responsibilities. But would you like to know what is on God's mind right now? What is on his mind? It's not Brexit. It's not the prime minister or who will be next. 
It's not Donald Trump. God's greatest concern, what is on his mind, is that his son will receive all the glory due him. And the greatest thing we can do is honor his son. And so, uh, it's only a matter of time that his son will be vindicated. There will be a day when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we have an opportunity today to be ahead of our times because that is where everybody will be at one time. It's coming. Everybody will be in total agreement. Well, now, I wonder if I could read these verses again that Gabriel just read. Verses 18 to 20 as we work our way through Colossians. He, it's referring to Jesus, is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, here's the thing. God is so proud of his son. Proverbs says, a wise son makes a glad father. And multiply this a million times. And you get closer to what it means. How much God loves his son. At his baptism, the voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. The voice at the transfiguration, same words. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Well, you may be interested in other things, and we've all been like this, uh, things that don't necessarily glorify God. We tell ourselves that this would glorify God. Uh, some years ago, I had an ambition that I would have told you was God-honoring. And I'll tell you what it was. I wanted to meet Nelson Mandela. I wanted to get him to endorse my book, Total Forgiveness. And I thought this would be a good thing because of his life and what he has achieved, and he's the perfect person. And I would have told you that that was honoring to God. Uh, the truth is, one day, flying from Johannesburg to Cape Town, where it was going to be set up that I would meet the great Nelson Mandela, and I got right into the president's office and talked to his number one man. But that's not the whole story. On the plane, flying from Johannesburg to Cape Town, my reading was a chapter in Jeremiah. It says these words, Seek thou great things, seek them not. And I knew right then that it was not God's will for me to meet that man. And the more I thought about it, I began to see how selfish my motive was. Uh, what was my purpose 
For one thing, could I meet Nelson Mandela and never tell anybody? What would be my motive to get him to endorse my book? Well, instead of selling thousands, we would have sold millions. It was selfish. I used to say at Westminster Chapel, how many of you could have tea with Her Majesty the Queen and keep quiet about it? You couldn't wait to get out of there to tell who you just had queen, uh, <laughs> tea with. The truth is, we think our motive is good. But when it comes to glorifying God's Son, you see, this means that the Holy Spirit has elevated you to a level. Satan would never lead you to this. I can tell you now, if there's anyone here, you're questioning your salvation, well, the ground of assurance is always trusting the death of Jesus Christ. But there are those who say, well, I would like an additional, an augmented level of assurance. I can tell you this, if your heart aspires to honor Jesus Christ and see that he gets the highest level of glory and prestige, only God can put that there. And so if you have a desire like that, good. Everybody ought to clap to that one. So we learned this. God is jealous for the prestige, the respect, the status, and the standing of his son. Here's what we learned from this passage, Colossians 1, 18 to 20, that the responsibilities are given to Jesus Christ, first of all, to be head of the church. We see further the truth about the person of Jesus, that he is God Almighty, and we see how far the blood of the cross is applied, that it extends not only to humankind, to men, women, boys and girls all over the earth, but to the very creation. And so, the two crowns that Jesus wears, head of the church, head of the nations, Saving grace, common grace. Four things that I want us to see. First, the position given to Christ. We're told he is head of the body, the church. Now the church is called the bride of Christ, but also the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about gifts in the body. Uh, there's the head, there is the hand. There is the eye. Uh, we are a part of the body of Christ, and all of us fit into the body. Some have a high profile, like the head or the eye. There are those who have no profile. They're like the pancreas or the intestines that you cannot see, but vital to the survival of the body. And so in the body are those with various gifts. Uh, the body of Christ means... His people throughout the world from the beginning of time until now. That is how huge. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, John said, I looked and behold a multitude that no man could number. Out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. And so we're talking about the church visible. That's who you see, invisible. Those born of the Spirit. And the head is Jesus. And by the way, he had no successor when he ascended to the right hand of God. In fact, when he became head of the church, 
at the right hand of God, it meant he would remain the head. Jesus had no successor. Who do you think is the head of the church? I'm telling you, it's not Colin Dye. It's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's not the Pope. It is Jesus Christ, and he governs. And we're told he is the head. So he has no successor, and there will never be a successor. Now, the Greek word translated head is kephale. And it's an interesting study. In fact, there's a heated debate, I mean red hot, over whether the word kephale refers to head or source. And uh, if you believe that the husband is the head of the wife, you want to say that it means head. But if you are uncomfortable with that, you want to say the husband is the source. And uh, uh, it really gets hot. Uh, Most evangelicals would say that he's the head, but you've got feminist evangelicals who say, no, he's the source. Well, um, the, the truth is that the word has a double meaning. It's both. But if pushed, and I don't mind being pushed because I think I should say it, it mainly means the head. The reason I say that is because Husbands are told to love their wives. If they were the source, they wouldn't need to be told that. But because they're the head, they are to show integrity and tenderness and care and love. And so the word mainly means the head. But as I said, it's a double meaning. For example, as head of the church, Jesus is our source. What's that mean? Well, our strength, our sustenance comes from Him. He sends the Holy Spirit to guide us. We feed on Him at the Lord's Supper. We get strength from taking the Lord's Supper. He grants us wisdom. He answers our prayers. So, yes, He is the source, being at the right hand of God. But what does it mean that he is the head of the church? Well, first of all, he determines who gets in. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Jesus Christ determines who gets in the church. That is, the invisible church, those born of the Spirit. Now, you can get into the visible church without being saved. You can get into the visible church because you think, I'll be better off, especially if you're running for office. Uh, Many years ago, Barack Obama was told, if you're going to run for office, you need to belong to a church. So he joined a church. And it's the politically correct thing to do in America. At least has been that way. I don't know how long that will last. But there are those who join the church because it will look good. And you can join the church without being converted. But those who are born again, it is Jesus. It is Jesus who brings you in. As a matter of fact, here's the way it's put. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church such as we're being saved. Jesus said, the Son 
is the one who quickens, and he gives life to whom he will. Matthew eleven twenty six twenty seven. 27. No one knows the Father but the Son, and no one knows the Father, the Son, but the Father, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. So, as head of the church, Jesus Christ determines who gets in. And if you are in the church, that is to say invisible, and I hope all of you are, that means you have been born of the Spirit, and it is something Jesus did. He's the one that approved you. Uh, not a pastor, not a nominating committee, or not because you know somebody and you want to get in. No, Jesus did that. Not only that, he has set offices in the body. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. This is what Jesus does at the right hand of God. And not only that, he sovereignly bestows gifts in the body. So if you have what in Romans 12, some would call motivational gifts, like gift of mercy or gift of service. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, there's the gift of prophecy, miracles, healing. These are sovereignly given. This is not something you can work up. Now, we are told to covet the best gifts, and that's perfectly legitimate. And if you see a gift you'd like to have, covet it before the Lord. Say, Lord, I want that. And if you really, really want it, be like the importunate widow in Luke 18 who just went back every day, every day, every day, and God may let you have the gift that you want. But I can tell you, if you get it, it'll be because the Lord does it. It's not something you work up. And that's not all. He determines the measure of our faith. I happen to read one verse every day, whether I need to or not. I have a, a Bible reading plan, and you've probably heard me say this many times, uh, designed by Robert Murray McShane. But here's a verse I make sure I read anyway. Every day, I've done it for years now. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You see, I have a danger there. I have a, a weakness of taking myself too seriously. And I read that. I read that. Because Paul goes on to say, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure, that word measure means limit, of faith, that God has assigned. And so when I see others who have a measure of faith I don't have, I just remember, I must think soberly. God has put me where I am. He's given me the limit of faith I have or the measure of faith. And I read it every day so that I will not, hopefully, take myself too seriously. And another thing Jesus does as head of the church, he not only determines who gets in, he sets offices in the church and who gets them. He bestows gifts to the body, determines the measure of faith, and he disciplines those that are in the church. Now, one way to find out whether you're in the visible church that everybody can see, which you can get into without being born again, or the invisible church, one way to know 
is whether you have experienced the chastening of the Lord. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And it comes from a Greek word that means enforced learning. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, chastening or being disciplined is grievous. It's painful. There's nothing exciting and happy about it. And I've actually talked to some sincere people who say, well, you know, I, I, I've never known chastening. And I privately say to myself, well, it's a dead giveaway. You've never been converted. Because the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, if you be without this disciplining, then you are illegitimate children. You're not really saved. Well, here's the point. As head of the church, this is something Jesus does. And in 1 Corinthians 11, there were those who abused the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, look around. Some of you are sick. Some of you are weak. You're wondering why? You've abused the Lord's Supper. And some of you have died. God just takes you home. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead by the Holy Spirit. If they had not been saved, that wouldn't have happened to them. It was what I call terminal chastening. God just said, your time is up. Well, this are just some of the things that we need to know when Paul says Christ is head of the church, head of the body. And then he says this, he is the beginning. We're talking about, secondly, not only the position that Christ has been given, but his preeminence. He is the beginning. He is the beginning. Creation is not the beginning. He is. Are you listening to me? Creation is not the beginning. He is. Say it with me. Creation is not the beginning. He is. One more time. Creation is not the beginning. He is. As we saw in the previous verse, he is before all things. By him, all things consist. And so this is part of what we need to know about the preeminence of Christ. John, on the Isle of Patmos, if we're to believe the tradition, he was going to be uh, burnt at the stake, but the fire wouldn't work. And then they boiled him in oil to kill him. And the oil never got hot. So finally they just sent him to the Isle of Patmos. Left him there to die. And while he was there, he said on the Lord's day, may have been Sunday or it could be prophetic day of the Lord that John was given to see, whatever. He had an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ in his glorified body at the right hand of God. His eyes were like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, the voice as the sound of many waters. And then John says, when I saw him, if we could just place a full stop right there for a moment. When I saw him, what would it be like to see the glorified Lord. And John said, when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as dead. And then he put his right hand on me and says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. He is the beginning of creation. Creation is not the beginning. He is. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. That is our Lord Jesus. And so, he's now called also firstborn from the dead. Well, firstborn, as we've seen earlier, is a title of dignity. See, of all those raised from the dead, according to Paul, Jesus is number one. Why does he put it that way? Well, that's because other people have been raised from the dead. Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elisha raised someone from the dead. Jesus himself raised at least four people from the dead. And the bodies of the saints rose on Good Friday. Why is Jesus firstborn? Well, for one thing, he's the first to be raised from the dead that never had to die. Not only that, John chapter 10, verse 18, he raised himself from the dead. Figure that one out. He raised himself from the dead because he's the firstborn from the dead. And not only that, he's the first fruit to be raised from the dead because, says Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the first fruits of them that sleep. In Christ, all will be made alive. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. That's a verse that doesn't mean being saved, by the way. That's talking about we'll be made alive. Uh, Easter's coming up. Uh, I don't know how you feel about Easter, but if you're not saved, do you know what you need to hope for? For anything, more than anything in the world, if you're not saved, you need to hope that somehow Jesus did not come out of that tomb. The resurrection of Jesus is the worst news you could hear if you're not saved. Because it means the very fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, he's the firstborn from the dead, that one day after you die, you will be raised from the dead, saved and lost. And the lost will be raised to stand before God. And he's the firstborn. And so the reason all will be raised, whether saved or lost, is that he might be preeminent. Because God wants him to have the ultimate prestige and glory. And then Paul gives the reason for his prestige. He said, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 19. That means that all of God there is, <laughs> is in Jesus. Let me tell you why that's important. For example... There was a philosopher, theologian of a previous generation by the name of Paul Tillich. Many evangelicals ran for him. They just liked what he was saying. But he was dangerous. And he actually said that though Jesus is the Christ, there could be another Christ to come along. That's what he said. There could be another Christ. Well, not according to Paul. 
Because according to Paul, all of the Spirit is in Jesus and nowhere else. All of God there is was put in Jesus. There can never be another. And so that's the, the main thing. The fullness means being filled to capacity. God in full measure was pleased to be in him. We're told, John 3, 34, that Jesus was given the Spirit without limit. I just read from Romans 12, 3, you and I have a measure, a limit of faith. Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. He had all of God you can get. All there is, it's in Jesus. There can never be another Christ, another Son of God. He's God's one and only Son. This is why I asked that Graham Kendrick's hymn be sung tonight, sung so beautifully. My favorite line refers to the man who is God. What a phrase. The man who is God. And because all the fullness of God dwells in him, this is why he's the beginning of creation. Firstborn from the dead. But there's a third thing I want us to see. Not only his position or his preeminence, but the propitiation of Christ. It comes from a Greek word, elasteron. Romans 3.25, God has made him a propitiation. It's referring to the blood of Jesus. Uh, so many modern translations simply translate it atonement. Well, it, of course that's true. Of course it is that. But propitiation brings out the meaning of the Greek that means turning the Father's wrath away. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfies his justice. And I wonder if you notice these words, through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His cross. You see, this lets you know that there was a place on the map where this took place, a date in history. For example, the Garden of Eden is a place on the map. The fall of man is a date in history. And so, the crucifixion, it was the blood of his cross. He owned it. He embraced it. He will, willingly volunteered to go to the cross. And that cross had an effect that went all over the universe. In the same way that the fall in the Garden of Eden affected the whole universe, would you have thought that what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, that had an effect not only on the posterity of the human race, but the whole world, Mars, Jupiter, the Milky Way, the Milky Way, all were affected by the fall. And so the blood of his cross would have an effect. He would reconcile to himself all things, not just people, things, whether on heaven or on earth. And so Paul makes the amazing claim that the blood of Christ applies not only to people, but to all creation. Uh, recently, uh, I've been reading through Leviticus. That's just where my Bible reading plan takes me. And several times in Leviticus, you have an expression that in the uh, ancient tent of meeting, uh, they would throw the blood against the altar. 
You see it several times. Throw the blood of the sacrifices of the animals against the altar. Why? Why? Well, read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, uh, verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now, what does it mean by copies? Well, there is an original mercy seat in heaven. What you have on earth, or you had in the ancient tent of meeting, Moses followed what was a copy of the real. The original, the, the real in heaven is where the mercy seat is that Jesus sprinkled the blood upon after dying on the cross. That's in heaven. But in the book of Leviticus, you've got the ancient tent, and there was the altar, and even the copies had to be purified by the blood. But that's not all. It's an amazing verse. Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves. That means, listen to this, that the original, the one in heaven, it needed to be purified by Jesus' blood. Even though it was God's creation, because here's what Paul says, all things created. And so the blood of Christ extends to all creation. You see, all nature was affected by the fall of Adam. The blood of Christ reconciled all things. That is, ensures that the universe will be restored. All nature and all creation. And also we know that the blood of Christ guarantees Satan's downfall. Revelation 12, verse 11. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives to death because when Jesus died on the cross, a lot was happening. He was reconciling the whole universe. He was guaranteeing the final defeat of Satan. The blood of Christ reconciles all nature. But there's a fourth thing, and that is the peace that comes to the whole universe. Satan and fallen angels will one day be utterly and openly defeated. Jesus' death will result in total peace and unity to the whole world. There'll be a day when everybody's going to be in agreement. Picture this. One day, Satan will bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how much he's looking forward to that? I think of evil people, wicked people, those in government, judges that can be bribed, people who get away with murder. When you think of all the religions in the world, I want you to know every Jew, as well as every Christian, every Muslim, every Shintoist, every atheist, all these wicked people will one day have to get on their knees and bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, he says, sounds like they get saved. No, no, no. They just have to say it. Every knee shall bow. 
every tongue shall confess. Everybody will in agreement. So it doesn't mean that fallen angels will be saved. It doesn't mean all people will be saved. But what it means is the blood of Jesus paid for the entire undoing of all the consequences of sin. You see, as I said, the whole universe was affected by the fall. As a matter of fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in all the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, redemption of our bodies. So a decayed universe will be restored. This is why in the book of Revelation, it's a restoration of the Garden of Eden. A new heavens, a new earth. There'll be no death. There'll be no crying. All tears shall be wiped away. God will take out his big handkerchief and wipe away all tears. No crying, no pain, no death. The whole universe, according to Paul, the blood of Jesus will result in the glorification of the universe. And who will get the glory for this? God has determined that it happens right now. I hope I'm doing a little of it by preaching. Showing you the prestige that Jesus deserves. And how much God loves his son. But one day when all this happens... Jesus will have all the preeminence and every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. You talk about unity. This is what Paul said, making peace through the blood of his cross.